Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you this morning. Man, it's so encouraging uh, to see so many kids at our church and see God at work in their lives, so we're so glad to have them here. Uh, welcome to you as well. If you're new or visiting, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here. Um, like Becky was saying, my name's Brand. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, I'd love to get to know you. love to help you get plugged in here. Uh, excited as well to invite you into our new sermon series that the, uh, we're going through in the spring and summer. It's called Jesus on Every Page. And what we're going to be doing over the course of the next few months is taking a look at a bunch of different passages in the Old Testament. And some you've probably heard of before, some you haven't. But we're going to be highlighting how all of them aren't ultimately meant to be like just to teach us some moral lesson, right? They're, they're not ultimately about just showing us what we should or shouldn't do or, or who we should or shouldn't be like. But instead, they're all primarily meant meant to point us towards the person and the work of Jesus. And the idea that the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, not just the New, is, is first and foremost about God and the gospel. That's not my idea. That's not something some brilliant theologian or pastor came up with. Uh, Jesus himself, that's what he taught. We saw in John 5 how he tells the religious leaders that the life and blessing and favor with God that they're so desperately searching for in the Old Testament, that you can only find it when they'll see him as the thing to which all the the scriptures point to. He additionally in Luke 24 after his resurrection says how Jesus beginning with Moses and the prophets, he teaches his disciples what is said about him throughout all the scriptures. And, and so at the heart of our series this summer is, is learning to read the Old Testament the way Jesus did, with him at the center and with the good news of the gospel at the center of all of it. Now, just to be clear though, even though our series is called Jesus on Every Page, it's not like his name is hidden somewhere, right? The joke I've been going with, right? Is that how it's not like a Nicholas cage national treasure type situation where there's an invisible map to the gospel on the back of some old testament parchment somewhere uh, but instead like sally lloyd jones puts it she says the bible is a story and at the center of that story is jesus every story whispers his name he's like the missing piece of the puzzle that makes all the other pieces fit together and so the beautiful picture of the gospel gets revealed so that's at the heart of where we're heading this summer. This morning, we're going to get a glimpse of Jesus and the gospel in the pages of the book of Exodus, chapters 13 and 14 this morning. And we're going to be taking a look at the account of the Israelites' exodus out of slavery in Egypt and the, the final scene, the kind of the final component of their deliverance as they cross the Red Sea. And in the grand storyline of the Bible, there are few passages that the Old Testament invites us to read more Christocentrically, more all about Jesus than, than this one. It's a passage that is referenced and alluded to countless times throughout the Old and New Testaments as, as the pattern, as the template by which God saves and by which he delivers. And what becomes clear as you read the stories at the very heart of the way God goes about rescuing, the way he goes about delivering his people is at the very heart of the reason the why and how is, is that he is after gaining glory for himself why he delivers his people, how he does it, where he does it. It's all so that his glory might be made increasingly known both to them and to the world. So in other words, what, what I want to show you this morning as we take a look at Exodus 13 and 14 is that, that God delivers his people out of bondage in order that his glory might be made known to them and through them. 
God delivers his people in order that his glory might be made known to them and through them. And my, my hope as we study this morning is that God's jealous pursuit of his own glory, that it might become the good news to you that it was always meant to be and that it was meant to be to the Israelites who have both experienced it and who recounted and remembered this story together. And so with that in mind, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into God's word and we'll look for Jesus on every page. God, thanks so much for you and for our time together in your word. And as we come to this, this uh, well-known account, God, of your rescue of your people from Egypt, and as you make a way for, their, for them where there is no other way, God, we pray that you might help us to see your son Jesus on every page. That the story is not just about trusting you in difficult times, but it's about coming to you for salvation. The only one who can give it to us, the only one who can do it. And so, God, we pray as we might see you as the Savior we are so desperately longing for and need, just as the Israelites did, we pray this morning that you might get glory in us and through us as we see you, the Savior you really are. We pray. Amen. Well, just a bit of context quickly before we dive into our passage this morning. We kind of left our story off with God's people last week with Joseph bringing his whole family, the Israelites, down to Egypt where they flourish under his care and leadership and provision during his time there. But Exodus 1 tells us that after Joseph died, there, a new pharaoh comes to, comes to power. And he doesn't really give a crap about Joseph or anything he did for Egypt in the past. And, and, he's, and this new pharaoh, instead, instead of choosing to bless the, the Israelites, he chooses uses to enslave them. And so for hundreds of years, the, the Israelite people, they remain in slavery and bondage in, in, in Egypt until God sends Moses as his representative to go and declare his uh, rescue and declare his freedom for them. And, and after a series of 10 really increasingly miraculous plagues, the Pharaoh at the time finally agrees to set God's people free to release them to go worship and serve God. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. It begins this way. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though, after, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. And so God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. And the Israelites, they went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up uh, with you from this place. And after leasing, leaving Sukkoth, they camped near Etham on the edge of the desert. And by the day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and to encamp near Pi-Hiaroth, where between Migdal and the sea, and they are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think that the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them. What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. And so we had this chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of, his, of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers, all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites 
who were marching out boldly. And the Egyptians, all feral horses and chariots and horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as, the, as they camped near Pi-Hiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They, they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. For the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them, and coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. And throughout that night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land, and the waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. And during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And in that day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. I don't know if you've uh, ever heard of the, the, the great prison Alcatraz, but Alcatraz was a, a prison that was thought to be inescapable. And it was located on this island just off the San coast of San Francisco where surrounded by these frigid waters and treacherous currents of the, of the San Francisco Bay. And over the 29 years that Alcatraz served as a federal prison, uh, there, were, there were 14 escape attempts involving 36 prisoners. And the, the official record is that none of those escape attempts were successful. Some were captured, some were shot, some guys drowned. One guy even made it to shore only to be uh, captured and put back in jail right again, right? 
But in the summer of 1962, there were three men that vanished from their cells, never to be heard from again. One, uh, one of those men was a bank robber named Frank Morris. Morris was a brilliant man, like top 2% IQ kind of brilliant, like, like legitimately brilliant. Turns out, though, that while confined on Alcatraz, instead of using his time to figure out how to break into bank vaults, he used all his time to figure out how to break out of prison. And he masterminded this highly intricate, very detailed escape plan. And although the FBI eventually closed their case concluding that these three men must have drowned, the U.S. Marshals' case, for a lot of reasons, was remained open. And the three men that escaped, they still remain on the wanted list, right? And how about you, but those, those escape stories and the mystery of those stories, they got, they've been turned into countless movies and TV shows and books and plot lines because we all love a really good escape story. We all love the details of it and the mystery of it and the kind of like uh, cat and mouse game of it, right? Well, our passage this morning is about an escape story as well. But like the infamous escape uh, from Alcatraz, this escape also seemed impossible, right? The Israelites had been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years by this point, right? It, it must have seemed to them like there was absolutely no way out of that. And yet, unlike the escape from Alcatraz, this one wasn't the result of careful planning. It wasn't the result of, of some brilliant criminal mastermind. In fact, it couldn't be more different. If you are planning an escape, you copy zero of the elements from this escape plan, right? There aren't any elements that you're like, wow, that's a great idea. Let's go with that one, right? See, Frank Morris, he would have looked at this story and thought exactly what you and I are supposed to think. It is a miracle. There is absolutely no way this should have worked, right? There aren't any elements of this escape plan that could be credited to anyone except God. And that's the whole point, right? The passage ends with verse 30, and it says, That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. One commentator, I think, just really helpfully summed up the whole passage this week. He said, God's grand purpose in everything he does is to display his own glory. And when God delivered Israel from Egypt, he did it in a way that guaranteed that he alone would receive all the credit. And so as we take a look at this story this morning, right, what I want to do is I want to highlight for you five ways that the way God saves his people, the way he delivers, five ways that that makes his glory known to them and through them, right? And the first is simply this, that God makes his glory known by delivering his people out of bondage kindly. He does it kindly. The passage shows the kindness of God's deliverance in a couple of ways, but the first is simply this, is that he leads them the long way around. He leads them the long way around, right? In verses 17 and 18, right, when Pharaoh lets his people go, God says he didn't lead them by the short path, right? Instead, he leads them the long way around because what he knows is that even though they've just been set free from hundreds of years of slavery, God knows that if, if they saw the Philistines and they were faced with a battle, they would have just run straight back into slavery in Egypt. And so God leads them the long way around. And he does that in kindness for them so that they might not turn from the freedom he's already given them. But secondly, we see that God gives them this, this constant visual reminder of his presence with them, right? In verses 21 through 22, it says that the Lord went ahead of them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, right? They'd, they just witnessed this incredible series of God's miraculous power at work with the, the plagues that were in Egypt that God brought through Moses that culminated in the death of the Pharaoh's own son. And, and you would think that they would have seen enough 
to be like, all right, I guess we can trust God with this, right? Like, we've seen all kinds of insanity. Right? Like, if God did that, like, we must be able to trust him. And yet God gives them even another sign that he's with them. It's one, not just that they can remember, it's one that they can always visually see in front of them. And I think it's just really easy for us to look at the Israelites and just be like almost offended like at their, like the weakness of their faith, right? And their need for God to just kind of handhold them through every little step of the way. And yet God's not offended. Right? He's kindly helping them to trust him. See, but God, because what God wants his people to know, and he wants them to see that his glory and his rescue is good news for them. Yes, he's the one who rescued them, and yes, he's the one who's leading them, but he's doing it for their good. He's doing it kindly, and so that his glorious deliverance would be good news to them. So God delivers his people kindly, but secondly, we see that God makes his glory known by delivering his people out of bondage faithfully. I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 19, right, it mentions that when they left, that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. And I don't know about you, but if I'm making an escape plan out of slavery, I am not making extra time to go dig up some bones, right? Like, those ones are there, let them stay, right? Like, ain't nobody got time for that, right? And yet, what we see is that Moses does the exact opposite, right? He goes and digs up Joseph's bones and brings them with them. What's going on there? Well, verse 19 continues. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because he had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones out from this place. You see, all the way back in in Genesis chapter uh, 50, God had told, or Genesis 15, God had told Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham that that for hundreds of years, his descendants would would be strangers in a country that that was not their own, and that they'd be enslaved and mistreated. But he says that one day I will punish the nation where they serve as slaves, and they'll come out with great possessions. See, Joseph had been told by his descendants that that his people would, they would become slaves in Egypt. And yet he had also been told that God would come to their aid, that he would rescue them. Hebrews eleven twenty two it says this, that by faith Joseph spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. See, Joseph believed that God would be faithful to keep his promises. And that what God told his grandfather Abraham that one day he would come to rescue and redeem his people. Joseph believed that with an absolute kind of certainty. See, in, in the Exodus, God proves again that Joseph was right, and that he can be trusted to be faithful. And God's glory is revealed to his people in both telling them what the future would hold and in keeping his promises to rescue them, something that only he could know and something that only he could do. And so God's faithful deliverance of his people, it makes his glory known to them. And while God's kind and faithful deliverance makes his glory known to his people, it's, it's the fact that he delivers them at all in the first place. It's the graciousness of his deliverance that begins to make his glory known through them. You see, grace is this free and unmerited thing. When it comes to God, it's about God's free and unmerited favor. And by definition, grace is about getting something that you don't deserve, right? It's about receiving something you don't earn, that you don't merit. And what is real clear as you read throughout the Old Testament is that the Israelites do not deserve anything from God. They don't deserve anything from him. They weren't especially faithful or bold or honest or good or loving. In fact, over and over and over, and you read the Bible, the only thing the Israelites excel at is doing the wrong thing. That's the only thing they excel at. 
Even here in our passage, literally days after miraculously being set free from slavery for hundreds of years in Egypt and being led literally by a giant pillar of fire all night long, right? As soon as they see Pharaoh's army approaching, the people's response is to doubt God and to mock Moses, right? Like in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 14, they basically tell Moses, they're like, listen, dude, if you wanted us to die, like we could have just stayed in Egypt. Like, I don't know if you saw the pyramids, right? Those are graves. They're real good at building graves. They're not running out of them. Like, we had, there was plenty of them there, right? We didn't need to go somewhere else to die. They had plenty for us, right? Right, but no, right? They're like, you had to come rescue us. We told you we liked it there. It was great, right? The sun was really hot. It was so wonderful, right? Like, we could have just stayed there. These people, right? They don't deserve to get rescued. They don't deserve to get saved. They don't deserve to be God's cherished people, they're faithless and ungrateful and forgetful and cynical. Like, like They're just like a train wreck. And it doesn't really get much better throughout the rest of the story. Hence, in saving a people who did not deserve saving, God gets all the credit. And he gets all the glory. I don't know about you, if I was God, and, and the Israelites would have responded that way, I'd just been like, you know what? Fine. You know, turn around, right? Go back to Egypt. In fact, here's a nice little chariot sandwich. There's a bunch of pointy spears on top. Just enjoy, right? Like, it'll just be wonderful for you, right? If that's, that's what you really want. But that's not how God responds, right? Instead, in verse 15, he tells Moses, let's go. I've got something I need to show you. I need to show the people. And he tells Moses to stretch out his arms over the waters. And that leads us to the fourth way. We see God's deliverance of his people, making his glory known. It's that God delivers his people out of bondage sovereignly. A sovereign is someone who rules with supreme power and authority, and there is no one who has more authority and more power than God. God's sovereignty is on full display throughout the entire passage, right? In verse 21, God's the one who leads his people as a pillar of cloud by day and by night. In verses 4 and 17, God's the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he changes his mind, even though his son has just died, right? And, and the Israelites, uh, he just like willingly goes and parts them, and he sends his armies even into like a miraculously parted ocean. They're like, this is a good idea, we should go here. God hardens their hearts so that happened. Verse 19, God's the one who protects his people throughout the night. In verse 21, God's the one who parts the Red Sea with a strong east wind. In verse 24, God's the one who throws Pharaoh's army into confusion and jams the wheels of their chariots. In verse 28, God's the one who returns the waters of the sea back to their place and swallows up Pharaoh's entire army. See, at every point in the story, God is the one who's doing the acting. He's the one who's doing the changing. He's the one who's doing the saving. The whole chapter is full of miraculous activity that is unexplainable apart from God's sovereign power and authority over, the, over everything, from the elements of creation to the hearts of his enemies. God's sovereign power is on full display. And people are always trying to try to explain away the miraculous parts of the Bible, right? There must have been, there's got to be some natural explanation for this whole Red Sea crossing thing, right? Like, it's probably just like a really narrow part, and there was a, this wind could have done it, or here's all these other explanations, right? And, and yet the, the, the reality is, is that the miracles, they're not peripheral to the story, they're not just like added details, like you can take them or leave them, you know, like whatever. They are central to the story. See, the whole point is that it could only have been God who saved the Israelites. That's the whole point of the story. They couldn't have saved themselves. Literally impossible. 
And that God's the one who does it. Like Moses said, it was God who would fight for his people. All they needed to do was be still. You see, the escape plan only works because God's the one doing all the work. That's the only way any of this terrible plan works. And the Israelites get that. They understand that by the end of the story, verse 31, it says, when they saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they put their trust in him and in Moses' his servant. See, it was the Lord who saved his people that day. It was just him. It was only him. It was all him. He saves his people sovereignly. And he does that so that his glory might be made known to them. But we see as well in the passage that he does it so that his glory might be made known to them, or through them, to the Egyptians. If you remember all the way back in Exodus chapter 5 when Moses first comes to Pharaoh and he says, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, right? he has commanded, he said, let my people go. And you remember the way Pharaoh responds to him, he's like, I don't know that God. I don't know him. I've never heard of this Yahweh dude. He must not be real impressive if all his people are my slaves. Like, no, I'm not interested. I, I don't really care. And that's what makes, as one commentator notes, makes the timing of his army's defeat all the more poignant. He writes this, it's ironic that the Egyptians were defeated at daybreak because that is when their sun god was supposedly rising in the east. And yet Ra couldn't save them, nor could Pharaoh, even though he too was revered as a god. They were powerless against the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, who as the Egyptian soldiers cried out to one another in verse 25, was clearly the one who was fighting for his people. God says, everything I'm about to do is so that you might see my glory and so that others in the world might see it through you. That's what it's all about. And so the story of God's gracious deliverance of his people, it closes with the Israelites on the other side of the Red Sea and the Egyptians under it. And the final picture we're left with is one where God's deliverance of his people out of bondage in Egypt is utterly complete. God tells Moses to stretch out his hands over the water one more time and they flow back over the Egyptians, covering them, sweeping them away. And the Egyptians, they saw that day chasing them, they would never see again. See, so the whole point right, is that their rescue was finished. It was done. It was complete. It was concluded. That chapter of their lives was closed. There's no more slavery, no more bondage. Right? God's people were really, finally, actually free. And God saves them. He does it kindly. And he does it faithfully, and he does it graciously, and he does it sovereignly, and he does it completely so that his glory might be made known to them and through them as they get saved in a way only he could do. See, and it's this point in, the, in most sermons on this passage that it usually gets to this spot where, where the preacher usually just encourages you to ask the question, what's your Red Sea moment? Right? What's, what's that moment in your own life where you need to trust God and to help you get through this really difficult situation in life? Well, that's not the direction that we're going because that almost entirely misses the complete point of the whole story. Right? 
Now, don't get me wrong. God wants us to walk through tough situations in life by trusting him. He wants that for us. And, but that's not what this passage is all about. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, Israel's passage to the Red Sea is not primarily intended to teach us what to do when we are in spiritual trouble any more than it serves as a how-to lesson on what to do when we come to a large body of water. Rather, he says, it is meant to teach us about coming to a glorious God for salvation. See, the whole point of the story is that God is the only one who could have rescued his people. They've been in slavery to a world superpower for hundreds of years. They have, in the end, right, they're, very, they're stuck between a body of water without a bridge and an entire army of chariots and horsemen. They couldn't save themselves. They needed God to rescue them. See, at the heart of the whole story of the Bible is that Israel's story is our story. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writes about this very account. He says it this way, these things occurred for us as an example. He says, our answers, when they passed, us, passed through the sea, they were baptized into Moses. They ate all the spiritual food and drink that came from him, and, and they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. He says, and that rock was Jesus. What Paul's saying is that the account of God's glorious deliverance of his people at the Red Sea, it happened. It was a real thing. It's not just a story. It's not just an analogy. It was real for them and just as it was an example or real for them it serves as an example for us as a foreshadowing for us you see the the red sea crossing was indeed a great escape but it served as more than that it served as a template for an even greater escape it foreshadowed an even greater deliverance the ultimate deliverance See, those five ways we saw God delivering his people out of bondage so that his glory might be made known to them and through them, that becomes the pattern for the way that God delivers and saves and rescues you and me. Because just like the Israelites, we too are in bondage and need to be rescued, and yet our bondage is greater than physical change to an earthly superpower. The Bible says that we are caught in spiritual chains to the greater enemy of Satan and sin and death. And we are in need of a rescue that only God can bring. At the Red Sea crossing, it's this foreshadowing of the gospel and of Jesus, our deliverer, who comes to set us free so that his glory might be made known to us and through us. And in the gospel, what we're reminded of and what we see is that God's deliverance of us is kind. In Romans chapter 2, it says that it's God's kindness that leads us to faith and to repentance. And we see that God's deliverance of us in the gospel is faithful, for Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies and all the promises that God would one day come to rescue his people and to set them free from slavery to Satan and sin and death and to live with him for eternity. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. And God's deliverance of us is gracious. Ephesians 2 says it this way, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You see, just like the Israelites, you and I, we do not deserve saving. And we do not deserve his, his deliverance. We are just as ungrateful and forgetful and faithless and fickle and that as they were. And it wasn't on our best day that God decided that deemed us worthy of saving. It's in the midst of our rebellion. Romans 5 says it this way, while you were enemies, Christ died for you. I think it's so much easier for us to think that God will deliver us if we make ourselves a little bit more deliverable. And yet that misses the whole point. 
Because the way God saves and who he saves and how he saves is all about him being the only one who could get any of the credit. And so God's deliverance of us is gracious, but more than that, God's deliverance of us is sovereign. You and I are hopelessly, helplessly stuck in the bonds of, of sin, and we cannot save ourselves. And we need to hear the same words that Moses spoke to the Israelites. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. I remember one time hearing a pastor talk about this, this passage. He said, um, that last part of the passage where it says to be still, he said it this way. It, in Hebrew, it, it's much stronger than we have in English. It literally means to shut up or to shut your mouth. See, what Moses is saying is that your job is to shut up and to sit there and to do nothing. And God's job is the one to save. He does all the work. In fact, if you get involved, you're going to mess it up. And the good news of the gospel is that God saves us like that. His salvation of us is sovereign. We don't bring anything to the table other than our need for saving. And that's really good news because if you had to bring anything to the table, you would mess it up. And so would I. And so God's salvation of us is sovereign. It's his power that saves, not ours. We don't do anything. God does everything. And so Jesus comes and he saves. And just like the Israelites, we lay hold of his salvation by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, 29 says that by faith, the people pass through the Red Sea as on dry land. Unless we think that's the, that was the quality of their faith that saved them. Hebrews goes on to add this. It says, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. And the whole point that Hebrews is making there is that it's not the quality of their faith that saved them. It's the object of the Israelites' faith that saved them. It's not the quality of their faith, it's the quality of the Savior. Tim Keller, he so humbly points it out this way, he sums it up, he says, Doubtless there would have been many that walked through those waters, second-guessing every step, fearful, inching forward. Others maybe boldly, maybe triumphantly walked or ran or jogged or skipped over that dry land, praising the Lord and celebrating their escape together. But they all crossed over the same. Individual Israelites had different qualities of faith, but they were all equally saved. They were all equally delivered. Why? Because you are not saved by the quality of your faith. You are saved by the object of it. I, just, I hope that's good news for you this morning. Because just like the Israelites, our faith, the quality of it, it wanes and wafers. And yet the thing that secures our deliverance is not the quality of our faith but it's the sovereignty of our Savior. And when he is the object of your faith, when your hope is rooted in his ability to save, not your ability to trust it, and what happens is your deliverance becomes complete. That picture at the end of the story of Moses stretching out his hands and the waters flowing back together, that's this visual depiction of this spiritual truth that God's showing his people you're really free. You're actually free. The story is over. This part is done. This chapter is closed. You are really actually free. And when the Apostle Paul references how they were baptized into Moses in 1 Corinthians 10, he's painting a picture of what baptism is all about. I don't know about you. I love getting to baptize people, right? You dunk them under the water and you say, buried with Christ in his death. And as you raise them up, the words are raised with him to newness of life. 
See, when people come up out of the waters of baptism, they're not different people. They're, real, they're the same people. It's not like something magical is happening in that moment. Instead, it's a symbol of this new birth, that the old is gone and done away with, and the new is here, and it's fresh, and there is a new beginning. The old you get swept away in the water, just like the Israelites' old slave masters were swept away in the Red Sea. And so when the Israelites looked past, their past was gone. It was over and done and finished. And that's true of God's deliverance of you and I through Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in new Christ, the new has come, the old has gone. In Romans chapter 8, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives a life that has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, just like God's deliverance of, his, of the Israelites at the Red Sea was kind and faithful, just like it was gracious, just like it was complete, just like it was sovereign. His deliverance of us is the same. It's full, it's complete, it's finished, and it's done. And yet what happens is what you see is that although the Israelites were free, although their salvation was complete, if you keep reading the story, you see that they don't live like they are. Just as soon as the waters had barely had time to settle, they're already turning from God and trusting other things and forgetting all he had done. They were, they were objectively free, but they didn't know how to live as free people. And, and that happens for us as well. So often we go back to running, running, we go running right back to slavery and sin, and we forget God's deliverance, and we live as though we're not really free. And so this story serves as a reminder for us about God's empowering presence, which not only sets us free, but helps us to walk in the freedom that he's secured for us. One pastor I listened to, he said it this way. I thought this was so helpful. I hadn't noticed this before. Verse 15, he said, when God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. God is not saying, don't ask me for help. He's saying, walk in the freedom I've already given you. Most Christians are like the Israelites on the beach who are crying out for a freedom they've already been given. We're carrying around broken chains. See, at the heart of following Jesus is that he rescues us, not just once, but he keeps delivering us, not just from the penalty of sin, but from its power in our lives each and every day. And the good, that's why the good news of the gospel is not just for the first day, it's for every day. As you walk with him. You see, so often I think maybe we need to start praying that God would help us to believe and live in the deliverance and freedom he's already secured for us rather than begging for new freedom. You see, the whole Christian life is about learning to be what you already are. You are free. It's about learning to live in the freedom Jesus secures for you. And this wasn't the last time the Israelites would need God to deliver them. It wasn't the last time they'd forget that they had already been delivered. But God gets the glory as he empowers them and us to live in the deliverance that he provides and that he brings about. And it's his kind and faithful and gracious and sovereign and complete deliverance that Jesus secures for us on the cross that we choose to remember each and every week when we gather. And we remember all that he has done for us, his body broken, his blood shed, because just like the Israelites, you and I forget. We forget the reality of our freedom 
and the deliverance God has brought. And we start running back to slavery and sin, and so we need to remember. So if you put your trust in Jesus to be your Lord and your God, if he's, your, if he's the sovereign Savior, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There are two tables in the back of the room, one on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread and the juice as a reminder of all Jesus has done for you. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you're figuring out what it means to follow him still, or you're just realizing you just have kind of this head-level religiosity, familiarity with him, I just wanted you to know we are so glad that you are here. And you're welcome here, but I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Because God's not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He wants you to put your trust in Him. He wants you to see His power on display in Jesus' death and resurrection so that your hope might be in all He has done, not what you can do. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is, and we'd love to help you get to know Him. And so as we celebrate communion, as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God. Some of you are here this morning, and you have never come to God for salvation. You've spent your whole life kind of trying to save yourself or ignoring your need for salvation in the first place. And you're realizing for the first time that like the Israelites in the midst of being caught between slavery to Egypt and the Red Sea, you too are caught between the slavery to sin and God's just judgment. And yet the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has parted the waters of God's judgment so that you might walk through. And all that remains for you to do is the same as the Israelites, to be still, to fear the Lord, and to trust Him. One commentator puts it this way, the only Red Sea experience that really matters is the one that Jesus had when He passed through the walls of death and came out victorious on the other side. Let that be, let His Red Sea experience be yours. And so some of you are here and you need to come to Him for the first time. Others of you are here and you have come to Jesus and had that kind of Red Sea moment where you put your trust in God to be the one that saved you. And like we were talking about this morning, you're not living in the freedom that he secured for you. And there's this invitation as we look at the pattern of God's deliverance that he might refresh your memory about it. And not just on a head level, but on a heart level. See, maybe God this morning is what you're realizing is that he's taking you the long way around in your spiritual growth. And it feels like this endless drudgery and this battle and you need him to remind you that it's his kindness to you. Don't begrudge the long way. It's for your good and it's for his glory. Maybe he's convicting you of sin and that's painful and uncomfortable and yet like Romans 5 tells us it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Maybe you need God to remind you of his great faithfulness to save you and if he was faithful to rescue you and save you when you were his enemy, you can trust him to be faithful to you now as his adopted son or daughter and friend. And maybe you need God to remind you of his grace that saves, not your effort and not your work, and you just stop trying to make yourself more deliverable and to embrace the fact that when you are at your worst, God rescued you. And maybe you need to remember that God saved you sovereignly, that you didn't add anything more than that you can't. Instead, the invitation is to be still and to receive the salvation that he offers, and maybe you've forgotten and need to remember that God saved you completely 
that his work is done, that you're right with him, that nothing can change that, and you need to ask him to enable your heart to believe and to live in the freedom he's bought for you. You see, God saves, and he does it. He does it kindly, and he does it faithfully, and he does it graciously and sovereignly and completely so that he might make his glory known to you. And so then by saving people who don't deserve it in ways no one could fathom, he gets all the credit, and his glory gets to be made known not just to you, but through you, and there's life there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for you, and thanks for the reminder this morning not just of your ability to save, but of the pattern of your salvation. And we pray that the the pattern of your salvation might be good news to us, that as we see Jesus as the epitome of your kind and faithful and gracious and sovereign and complete salvation, might the gospel be better and better news to our hearts. Might it captivate our attentions. Might it fill our focus so that you might be our all in all and that our hearts might live in the freedom you secured for us so that others might know your glory in and through us, we pray. Amen.